The Life and Writings of James Parnell Part 2 While traveling in the work of the ministry, he sometimes held public disputes with the different religious professors of the day, who, although under ordinary circumstances, were bitter enemies to each other, they nevertheless ardently and cordially united to oppose that pure and spiritual worship, that sanctity of life, and that reality and religious experience which James Parnell was given to proclaim. In the 30th of the third month, 1655, while James Parnell was freely declaring the truth of God in a house at Finstanton in Huntingdonshire, several Baptists, with their teacher, Richard Elligood, entered the room, and after a pause the teacher arose and addressed James Parnell. Sir, if you please, I will speak something to what you have said. James Parnell replied, Here there is no need of compliments. The teacher continued, You have said that God does not respect any forms, and yet you used the form, and so used that which God has no respect to. And being asked what form had been used, the teacher replied, The written letter. To which James Parnell answered, He that uses the written letter to talk of it without the life and power sets up a form and makes a form. This answer satisfied the people, but the teacher continued to dispute. So James Parnell said, A form is this, the likeness of a thing, but not the thing itself, such as those who have the likeness of a church with their elders, pastors, and teachers, but not the church itself. In the same way, many imitate the scriptures, but live not in the life of him that spoke forth the scriptures, and so lack life and power. These are the formalists, who make forms and likenesses to deceive the simple, even as the devil may take the form of an angel of light, but he has not the light and power itself. And it is he who appears to rule in the formalist and self-actors today. But the day of the Lord does make him manifest, and therefore he rages. On several occasions when James Parnell returned to Cambridge, he heard it reported that, when he was absent, the Baptist boasted of intending to have a dispute with him. After some preliminary difficulties in coming to a mutual understanding as to the mode and regulations of the dispute, the 20th of 4th month, 1655, was appointed. When they arrived at the place provided by the Baptists, they were not allowed to meet there. They then went to the house of one of the Baptist party, where the woman of the house behaved in a very unchristian manner towards friends, which led James Parnell to remark that she had clearly not departed from the old nature, and it was evident that she had derived no benefit from her water baptism. James Parnell then retired to a friend's house amid a great rabble of rude students and people to whom he declared the truth. After a time, a message came that the Baptists were in the Shire House in the castle yard and had sent for him. Here, James Parnell found a man named Doty, a Baptist, and Ricks, an independent, two great enemies to each other on ordinary occasions, now united against him. But after all the trouble in determining how they should meet, and the difficulty in getting a place, only one question was asked, and only one answer given by James Parnell, which satisfied some but not all. James Parnell, however, had an opportunity of speaking to the people and proving to them that the charges brought against the truth and against himself as its messenger were groundless. Many rude students were present on this occasion, and having plotted together, as soon as James Parnell left the castle yard, 
they flocked together about him and treated him very shamefully. In the month following, while several of the Lord's people were met together in a friend's orchard at Littleport on the Isle of Ely, John Ray, with two other teachers, came among them to excommunicate Samuel and Ezekiel Cater, who had formerly been elders among the Baptists, but having been convinced of the truth by James Parnell's ministry, had united themselves with friends. John Ray, having run out into many disorderly words, excused himself from staying to prove his assertions, saying he must be at the steeplehouse shortly. Footnote. Steeplehouse was the term early friends used to refer to church buildings. Returning to text. When their meeting was over, James Parnell passed into the town, and having been informed that John Ray was railing against the truth in the steeplehouse, he went there with some friends. When the sermon was ended, James Parnell stood up and claimed the order of the true church from 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 30, that all might speak one by one, and if anything be revealed to him that stands by, let the first hold his peace. John Ray refused to stay and defend his statements, although many of his congregation wished to detain him. James Parnell afterwards addressed the people in the graveyard. The conduct of James Parnell here is worthy of notice. Although John Ray had disturbed the meeting of friends on the same day, Parnell quietly waited till the service was ended and then claimed the order of the true church as laid down by the apostle. He manifested a similar disposition to maintain right order on an occasion just mentioned, refusing to speak in the Shire House till the jailer had given permission. Another instance will appear shortly. On the following day, this same Ray told a friend that James Parnell had said he was the head of the true church. This led him, with several friends, to attend a meeting which the Baptists were holding in a house where they found John Ray speaking to the people. As soon as he saw James Parnell, he ceased speaking, closed his book, and bade him be gone out of the house. James Parnell answered, Is your spirit limited? Is your spirit bound? He again told him to be gone and asked him why he disturbed them. James Parnell inquired how he had disturbed them. Was I not silent until spoken to? It being an open meeting, although in a private house, James Parnell did not consider himself bound to leave. Although John Ray manifested great anger, and one of the elders pushed Parnell on the breast with his hand several times, having told John Ray that he was ashamed of his doctrine, he shook off the dust of his feet for a testimony against them and so left. However severely James Parnell might have at times addressed those whom he regarded as living at ease in their sins, or as deceiving themselves and others by a profession without a possession of the truth, or as false teachers causing the people to err by teaching them for doctrines the traditions of men. Yet it appears clear from the testimonies of those who were acquainted with his private character that he was meek, gentle, and patient, and his addresses to both those who were convinced and at times those who were still in darkness evinced a kind and affectionate mind. His only object in using severity was to arouse men to a sense of the seriousness of their conditions if they remained in an unrepentant state. He had known the terrors of the Lord, and therefore was earnestly concerned to call others to flee from the wrath to come. And as he knew the sweet consolations of Christ Jesus, he was therefore eminently qualified to invite the truly thirsty soul to come and drink of the same living fountain of spiritual refreshment. He was without doubt an able minister of the gospel, 
and left many seals of his ministry. In that day, it was remarkably verified that out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, praise was ordained, and the weak things were chosen to confound the mighty. Samuel Took remarks in his memoir of Stephen Crisp that the Society of Friends in the counties of Cambridge, Essex, Suffolk, and Norfolk was first raised and became very numerous, principally through the labors of three instruments, James Parnell, William Caton, and George Whitehead, neither of whom had attained the age of twenty years. The following original letter of Parnell, in the possession of the meeting of sufferings addressed to Edward Burrow and Francis Howgill, may be inserted in this place. It is dated the 18th day of fifth month. There can be no doubt that it was written in 1655. It presents many points of interest. He writes, Dear friends and brethren, In the eternal, unchangeable love and life of the new covenant I am with you, and there do I salute you, where we are one, in our measures, though ten thousand, all children of one father, brethren and sisters of one family, and heirs of the promise, every one in the measure of the gift of grace given unto us. Herein does our joy abound, and is made full in one another. In the light of the new covenant you can read me, where I am present with you, and do embrace and salute you, though absent in body. For we are all begotten by one immortal word, and so are born again and come to bear the one image of our Father, so that hereby we may know one another to be children of the one Father, and do see and read and enjoy one another in this same unchangeable covenant of love and light. Here is the blessed union and communion and fellowship and the glorious liberty of the children of the new covenant, who are sealed in this everlasting covenant of life. And this is the great riches of the love of God bestowed upon us, that we should be found worthy of this high calling. Dear brethren, the letter which you sent from Cambridge I received, with the same love that sent it, and I did acknowledge it as an evidence of your care and wisdom. Shortly after I went to the Isle of Ely, I had meetings at Ely Town, and was moved to go to the steeple house, but the rude people would not allow me to speak. Yet I was mightily preserved by the power of God, and I had a great meeting in the town that day, and in much power was I carried forth to the binding and chaining of the heathen, and the raising up of the witness in hearts, so that many were convinced. The town is much hardened against the truth, but yet I see further work to be done in it. There is a good people coming on at Littleport, in the isle. I remained there a time among them, and there are about sixty that are brought to meet together in that town alone. On the first day I had a meeting at Soham, within three miles of Colonel Russell's. There I was moved to go to the steeple-house, where a London priest got up into the seat of the Pharisee, and he was a true Pharisee, for he was much painted. Footnote. Quakers used the word painted in the same way that Christ spoke of painted or whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Returning to text. I was permitted to stay until he was done, and then I was carried out in mighty power to speak to him and to the people, which bound them all under. They were a great people and very rude, but the power of God was wonderfully seen in delivering me, so that I do not think that they gave me a single stroke. The throng was great, 
So I pressed forth into the yard, and there they made way for me. And I was moved to speak in much power, and they stood still like lambs about me. At length there came one Robert Hammond, called a justice, who had been at the steeple-house, and said there was a proclamation that all who disturbed the ministers in the time of their public exercise should be apprehended as disturbers of the peace. So, if I would not pass away, he said, I should be apprehended. I felt free to pass on from that place, but I told him and the people that I should declare the truth in the town that day. And so upon these conditions I was set free. I had a great meeting in the town that day, and there were present several of the people who belonged to the group at Chippenham. Those that were there received the truth willingly, and there were many people convinced that day. The news of this meeting reached Hammond's ears and stirred up his spirit against the truth. The priests and he consulted together against me, and the next morning he sent a warrant for me and committed me to Cambridge jail for disturbing the priest, whereas he had before set me free from that charge in the presence of a hundred people. So this was on the last second day that I was sent to Cambridge, and there I was put into the low jail among the thieves. But the next day... Justice Blackley sent his warrant and set me free from the bonds, though I was made very willing to remain if it had been the Lord's will. But in his great wisdom he ordered it according to his good will and pleasure, for I did not mention it to Blackley, but he did it of his own accord. The next day I went to a meeting six miles from Cambridge, where I met with my dear sisters Anne Blakely and Dorothy Woff. They will remain in these parts a while. My sudden release and going into the country proved very serviceable, for the opposers were much exalted and had rejoiced at my imprisonment. It is likely, if the Lord wills, I shall pass shortly back into those parts where I was taken, for there is a people there to be brought forth. But the opposers, I perceive, are plotting together to get me into prison again, for the jailer has been with Blackley about it, and is troubled because he let me go without bail, and threatens to get another warrant for me. But I am content, whether in bonds or out of bonds. I have thought to remain hereabouts for a time, if you have movings to write anything. Salute me dearly to my dear brother George Fox, and all the rest of my dear brethren, sisters, and fellow laborers in the vineyard of the Lord. Salute me dearly to all my dear and tender hearts, whom the Lord has chosen out of that great city, Sodom, to bear his image and to glorify his name and to be as signs and wonders in an adulterous generation. The Lord God prosper and increase his work in them and among them, with a strong arm and power to beat down their enemies before them. James Parnell. This from Cambridge, 18th of 5th month. I shall be glad to hear from George or from any of you. It seems worthwhile to insert in this place the following extract which forms the conclusion of one of James Parnell's works, entitled A Shield of the Truth, in which he briefly states some of the accusations brought against friends and replies to them frequently with remarkable clearness. He writes, And now something to all you tender-hearted ones who are convinced by the light of God in your consciences, which makes your consciences tender. For your sakes I have laid myself open freely, and so I desire that you may mind that light of God in your hearts, to which I speak, which is my witness, and which has convinced you, that it may be your true guide, which will lead you into conversion into the life, 
and to witness with me against the world, that my labor may not be in vain. Look not out at scandals, false accusations, and reports, for these are the reward which the righteous have always received from the world. Christ, our Lord and Captain, showed the example, as it is written, They who will live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution, and they who depart from iniquity make themselves a prey. That in you which cannot bear these things is not of God. So turn your minds inward to that measure of light in you, which is without guile, which is gentle, which can bear all, as it did both in prophets and apostles and all the holy men of God. This led them through good report and evil report, through persecution and through death, and this is the way to life, and he who enters must enter this way. So fear not, but be willing to give up and to part with all, though it be ever so near and dear, yes, though it be your bosom friend and cherished possessions. For he that loves anything more than me is not worthy of me, says the precious pearl. And he that will not leave all and follow me is not worthy of me. Moses thought it greater riches to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of Pharaoh's court for a season. For the pleasures of this world and the afflictions of this world endure but a time and then pass away. All things visible pass away, but the joy of the righteous endures forever. And if our hopes were only in this life, we are of all men most miserable. But he that endures to the end shall have a crown of glory, as Paul witnessed. So fear not, little flock, but be faithful, valiant, and bold. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And a hundredfold shall you receive of what you lose, whether lands or livings, wife or children, or whatsoever it be. The promise is to the faithful and your joy and advancement shall be in the destruction of your inward enemies, when the Lord shall make your enemies your footstool. But this is witnessed through the warfare, and he who endures to the end of the war shall witness it. This, in my measure, I witness, and out of tender love from my soul to your souls do I declare it, and desire that you may all endure to witness with me. For love is charity, and the light leads through all. And so I rest in my habitation, known to all that can read me in spirit. Farewell, James Parnell. The following paper, written in 1655, will be read with interest, especially when we consider the youth of the author. A word to all who are still in your own formings, self-actings, and imitatings. You are acting in that nature which is enmity against God, which is not subject to the law of God, neither can be. So all your formings and actings are in vain, for they are not from life, but from death instead of life. But there is a life that comes from death, for in the destruction of death, life is obtained. Therefore, to the light of the Lord Jesus in all your consciences, which light is the witness for God, take heed to which I speak in you all, which witnesses for God against the secrets of your hearts and reproves you in secret for all actions and deeds of darkness. Indeed, this light will search you through 
and let you see what you have truly witnessed of the work of God in your hearts. For all your long and great profession of faith in Christ, esteeming yourselves to be saints in Christ and members of his church. And in this light you will see, if you have truly witnessed the earth being removed out of its place, and the mountains removed by the eye of faith, and the veil of darkness rent. Is not the first man still standing in you? Are you not in the first image, where the serpent is head? For while you are strangers to the light, and your minds are turned from the light, you are wandering and straying in the paths of darkness, and so you are the children of darkness, in whom the prince of darkness rules, even the serpent, who is head in the carnal man. But the promise is, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. But while you are acting in your own wills and wisdom, the serpent is your head, and you have not yet come to witness this first promise fulfilled, but are still in the fall, under the power of darkness, in the disobedience, and strangers to the cross. These, who are in that nature, have no part in Christ. For none come to have a right in Christ except through the cross. For as many as are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death, and they that are dead with him do live with him. They that are in Christ are new creatures. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. But they that are not in Christ are still in old Adam, and so in the fall, under the curse and under death's dominion, driven out from the presence of God into the earth, where death reigns over all from Adam until Moses, regardless of what you profess. Therefore, read yourselves by the light which comes from Jesus Christ and shines into your dark hearts, that which searches the heart and tries the reins and makes manifest all secrets. All who have a desire to find the way of truth, I direct your minds unto this light, turning you, from the darkness to the light, and thereby you may come to see how you have wandered and been scattered in the many ways of darkness, in the land of darkness, in the cloudy and dark day, as sheep without a shepherd, being carried about after the voice of strangers, away from the shepherd of your souls. Therefore, hearken no more to those who cry, Lo here, or Lo there is Christ, who seek to draw your minds without to seek for a Christ without, and a redemption without, and a sanctification without, and a righteousness without, and a God without. But turn, turn your mind within, for the kingdom is to be found within, if ever you will find it. For there is no way to come unto the true knowledge of the truth, or of God, or of Christ, but by that gift of God within. For that which may be known of God is manifest within. Romans one nineteen. The way to God is to be found within by the light, which manifests and slays death. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, and Christ's life is the light of men. So turn in your minds to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, if you love it and bring your deeds to it, will let you see the deeds of darkness, and the paths of death. And it will also search your hearts and make manifest your inward parts and let you see what you have lost. 
and as you love this light and like to retain it in your minds and to be guided by it, it will lead you out of all the crooked and adverse ways of darkness into the light of life. So you will find and know the voice of the true shepherd who has come to seek out and gather all his scattered sheep from among the mountains and valleys and the many ways and crooked paths wherein they have wandered and to gather them together into one flock, into one way, into one sheepfold, where he alone will be their shepherd. And as you love the light and follow it, you will see how it will lead you out of your many forms and many ways into one way. It will lead you out of your own wisdom and imaginations, wherein you have been building Babel, and it will strip you of all your own righteousness, wherewith you have covered over your deceitful hearts. Yes, it will lay your deceits before you, and bring you to judgment. And if you love this light and follow it, and are willing to wait upon it, outside of your own wills, wisdom, imaginations, carnal thoughts, reasonings, consultations, self-acting and imitating, it will lead you to distinguish the voice of the true shepherd within you from the voice of the stranger, and so to know the precious from the vile. He who said, I am the light, said, I am the good shepherd, and he will bring you to know the way and door into the sheepfold if you do not run out in your own wills and seek to climb up another way. For the way is but one, he that said, I am the light, said, I am the way, and I am the door into the sheepfold. So if you turn from the light and stumble at the light, you stumble at all, and so will fall. But if you love the light and are willing to follow the light, it will lead you through all, to deny yourselves, to take up the cross unto yourselves, and to pass through good report and evil report, through persecution and through death, and the way will not be grievous, but joyous. And so you will come into the way and enter at the door into the sheepfold, and so into fellowship and into life and into the power and into the faith of the saints where all live in unity in one, united by one into one body. Here you will find the end of all bickering and arguing, divisions and disputes. Therefore, said the Apostle, where is the wise? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? I call you to come out from among them and to be separate and to touch no unclean thing. And I will receive you, says the Lord, and I will be unto you a father, and you shall be my sons and daughters. Now you are called, and this is the day of your visitation. For now light is come into the world, and if you like to retain it in your minds, happy are you. But if not, by it you are left without excuse, and it will judge you in the last day. For he that loves the light shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. But he that does evil hates the light, and this is his condemnation. Now, the way is plain to all simple ones who have a desire to find it, declared by a friend and witness to the eternal truth, James Parnell. James Parnell, having diligently labored in Cambridgeshire and Huntingdonshire, passed into Essex, 
probably about the middle of the fifth month, 1655. According to Stephen Crisp, the fields in that county were white unto harvest, and there were very many whose spirits for some time had gone heavily and wearily on their way under the burden of sin, and who had sought among the different professions and opinions of the day for a knowledge of that which could relieve them from it, until they had become weary of seeking ways to escape. In answer to the cry of his own seed, the Lord sent James Parnell among them to preach the word of life and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Having preached the gospel in many parts, such as Felstead, Stebbing, Whitham, Cogshell, Halstead, and other places, where many hungry souls gladly received the word of life, and having planted many good meetings and confirmed those that believed, he at length went to Colchester about the sixth month. This was the place of Stephen Crisp's nativity, and where he then resided, being engaged as preacher among a separate people. Footnote. Stephen Crisp became an eminent minister in the early Society of Friends, laboring for the next thirty-five years in the power and wisdom of the Spirit throughout England, Scotland, Holland, and Germany. Returning to text. Stephen Crisp was educated in the national mode of worship. He was, from his earliest youth, sensible of the visitations of heavenly light, although not then knowing from where that light came, which both reproved him for sin and caused peace and joy to spring up in his heart when he was obedient to its call. But the carnal mind would arise and excuse sin and lead him into transgression, under the burden of which he was often made bitterly to mourn. He sought various ways to escape from condemnation, but while he remained the servant of sin, the light of truth pursued him with deep convictions and broke down his peace faster than he could build it up, causing the fig-leaf aprons of his own works, with which he would attempt to cover his nakedness, to appear as tattered and filthy rags. He says he saw no further than his own works as a means of bringing him peace with God. He heard talk of Christ and Savior, but in the anguish of spiritual ignorance, still he had to exclaim, But oh, that I knew him! In those days, Stephen Crisp gave his ear to many religious disputes, ran after the best ministers, and read sermons, but all was in vain. He could not find rest, for he still felt the power of sin in him and longed for a way to overcome. He applied to others in his distress, both among the national church and separate professors, but none could help him. So he continued to cry, Where is the faith which purifies the heart and gives victory? The prevailing ignorance of the experiential work of religion among those who were making a great profession of it had the effect of driving him away, for a time, from religion altogether, to seek a joy and consolation in the world. But the Lord's hand was too heavy for him there, so that he soon returned to seek after something more substantial in religion. Under these feelings, he submitted to water baptism, but soon had to mourn that this, too, was but a form without the power, and it did no more than cleanse the outside but did not give him that inward cleansing which would enable him to have the answer of a good conscience towards God. Thus, finding that he still lacked what he had lacked before, he told the elders of the Baptist church that God would soon overturn all their worships and religions 
which stood in outward and carnal things, and would make known some way above them all, which should stand forever. He had heard of the Quakers, and longed much to see some of them, yet his carnal mind was able to reason much against some of their doctrines, especially that of freedom from sin, even though it was that for which he had all his life been longing. He was about twenty-seven years of age when James Parnell came into Colchester. When he first saw the youthful messenger, he thought that he should be able to withstand him, and began to question him, and endeavored to draw him into discourse. But he soon found that James Parnell had a different spirit, even a spirit of sound judgment, which was superior to his carnal reasoning. Crisp was obliged to acknowledge the wisdom with which he spoke, and said to those around, All of our rods of Christian profession must be lost and devoured by his. On the day following, he went to a meeting appointed by James Parnell, and so great was the authority with which he preached that Stephen Crisp was constrained to acknowledge and confess to the truth. The very interesting and instructive account which Stephen Crisp gives of his own experience in religious matters previous to his meeting with James Parnell, his feelings on first seeing this stripling coming forth against the Goliaths, who had been too powerful for his own more matured years and greater acquaintance with the weapons of war, the inward contempt which he felt when he thought to withstand him by argument, and his subsequent convincement of the truth, all afford us striking evidence of the power and authority of James Parnell's ministry. He was young, very small in stature, and of a poor appearance, yet the wisdom of man was made to bow before that spirit by which he spoke, and of which he was the instrument. The following original letter from James Parnell, obtained from Colchester Monthly Meeting, was addressed to Stephen Crisp, probably a short time after his convincement. It is without date. He writes, Friend, stand in and keep your mind too, that which lets you see your enemies to be of your own house. Your imagination is an enemy. Your wisdom is an enemy. That which has been precious to you is now your greatest enemy. Therefore, you must now sacrifice what you have called precious and yield it up to death, that the just one may be raised to life and the righteous seed be brought forth to reign in you and be your head. In this way, the head of the serpent will be bruised. In your measure, you will come to understand this as you dwell low in the light which manifests your condition, for whatever makes manifest is light. Ephesians 5.13 Let that eye be kept open, which the God of this world blinds in the children of the world. For by this eye, the children of light can see their enemy, and so the tempter is known, resisted, and denied. So with this eye, set a constant watch, and let not the fool's eye wander abroad, which draws the wandering mind out after visible objects. Rather, stand in the warfare, giving no place to the enemy or to his delusions, but be content to become a fool, that all selfish thoughts may be judged. Then you will receive wisdom from him who gives generously and without reproach to discern and know the enemy's schemes. But know that it is in the cross to your own will and hasty mind 
that the gift of God is received. Therefore, it is said, he that believes will not act hastily. Isaiah 28.16 Therefore, be not weary of the yoke of the cross, for in faith it is made easy, and the impatient nature is crucified, and patience has its perfect work. So be still in the measure of light which exercises your mind towards God. Desire after nothing, but let your thoughts be judged, and let the power of God work, that he may be seen to be all. And by this principle alone you must be led and act, keeping in the cross to the carnal part and denying self, both in the particular and in general. And consider not who is displeased, so long as God is pleased, for in this you give no just occasion of offense to any. And though there is enmity in the world, yet, as this leads you to walk towards God in faithfulness, so it leads also you to walk towards man with a conscience void of offense. So keep your mind to the light, and be not hasty to know anything beyond your measure, for this is how Eve lost her paradise. Rather, lie down low in the will of God, and wait upon his teaching, that he may be your head, and you will find the way of peace and dwell in unity with the faithful. And though you are hated by the world, yet in God you will have peace and well-being. James Parnell About ten years after, Stephen Crisp was called upon to write a testimony to the character and ministry of James Parnell, which he did in a spirit which manifests that the remembrance of this instrument, by which his long wandering and weary soul had been turned into the way which leads to an establishment in the truth, was still very precious. After speaking of the great work which the Lord by his own arm of power had wrought in those days, he goes on to say, Babes have been his messengers, and children have been his ministers, who in innocency have received the revelation of his Holy Spirit, by which the deep things of his law and of his glorious gospel of life and salvation have been revealed. And among these babes, who thus came to receive a knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God by the working of his divine power, was this noble child, James Parnell, who was a vessel of honor indeed, and mighty in the power and spirit of Emmanuel, breaking down and laying desolate many mighty strongholds and towers of defense, in which the old deceiver had fortified himself and his children. Much might be spoken of this young man, and a large testimony does live in my heart to his blessed life and to the power and wisdom that abounded in him. Stephen Crisp the diligence with which James Parnell labored, and the eagerness of the people to hear the truth, are strikingly exemplified in the account of his services the day after he arrived at Colchester. He went there on the seventh day, and on the first day preached the truth to many thousands of people, first in his own lodging, then in the steeple house after the sermon was concluded, and then at a great meeting appointed for that purpose. After this meeting he disputed with the town lecturer, and another priest, in all of which the wisdom, power, and patience of Christ appeared very gloriously to the convincing of many who were witnesses of that day's work. During the week he was diligently engaged, preaching, praying, exhorting, and admonishing, turning the minds of all sorts of professors to the light of Jesus Christ. 
Many received the truth that was declared unto them, and found by a living and individual experience the reality and substance of that religion which, hitherto, they had known only as a name. But there were others who turned away from him and refused to believe. With these he disputed daily, with great soundness, and in the evidence and demonstration of the Spirit, by which the mouths of gainsayers were stopped, and many more reached and convinced of the truth. The prevalence of the truth among the people stirred up the anger of many, who gnashed their teeth at him, and some attempted to make up the deficiency in their priests' arguments by beating James Parnell with their fists and staffs. Under the many affronts which he had to suffer, his spirit was never seen to be raised in heat or anger, but he was a pattern of meekness and patience, calm in disputation, and not resentful under the infliction of personal injury. One day, as he came out of Nicholas Steeple House at Colchester, someone struck him with a great staff, saying with a blasphemous sarcasm, There, take that for Jesus Christ's sake. To which James Parnell simply replied, Friend, I do take it for Jesus Christ's sake. He stayed at Colchester, thus diligently laboring and suffering for the truth about ten days. The promulgation of the true Christian principles through James Parnell among a people who had long desired and expected a brighter day to arise upon the church was attended by such great convincement that the priests and other professors began to be alarmed. Through their instrumentality and by their preaching, many slanderous reports were raised against the truth and its messengers. They strove all they could to hold it up as odious to the eyes of the people. But when James Parnell came among them to reply to their false accusations, they turned away from a public support of their assertions and left their congregations. And James Parnell had thus an opportunity to proclaim still further the true doctrines of the despised Quakers, doubtless in a much more and efficacious manner than would have been the case had the preachers remained to dispute with him. At length, the priests began to appoint special meetings in order to attempt to persuade the people that the truth was error and heresy, and so, by incensing and prejudicing their minds, to prevent them from hearkening to the Quaker ministers. And at the same time, they sought their own protection and the suppression of their opponents by calling in the assistance of the secular powers. James Parnell, having heard that one of these meetings was appointed to be held at Great Cogshell, on the twelfth of the seventh month, in order, as the priest publicly announced, to fast and pray against the errors of the people called Quakers, he felt drawn to be present at the meeting. And although he was persuaded that their object was to ensnare him and bring him into bonds, should he go to Cogshell to defend the principles which he had preached, yet he said, I am made willing not only to be bound, but also to suffer for the pure eternal truth which I am made a witness of. He manifested on this and on other occasions a striking desire to proceed orderly and to give as little cause of offense as possible, being, as he says, pressed in spirit to go among them in the behalf and defense of the truth of God. On the day of the meeting, he left his friends, probably assembled for worship, without telling them where he was going. Another friend followed him to the door and asked if he might accompany him. James Parnell told him to use his freedom, but that he desired to go alone. When he came to the steeple house, several children would have flocked in after him, 
but he requested them to go in first that no disturbance might be occasioned. He entered orderly and stood in silence while the priest was reviling and reproaching the Quakers. When he had finished and was leaving his seat, James Parnell said, This is the order of the true church, that all may speak one by one, and if anything be revealed to him that stands by, let the first hold his peace. 1 Corinthians 14.30 And then proceeded to speak on behalf of the people, which the priest had ignorantly and maliciously belied. But he was soon interrupted by the priests, who ran out into many words and thus caused great confusion. At length, he who had preached asked James Parnell what he could object against him, to which Parnell replied, in that he had reviled the Quakers and said that they were built on a sandy foundation, but he would prove their foundation not to be sandy and him to be a false prophet. He was then allowed to vindicate the foundation of the Quakers, the real people, though perhaps not all who were called Quakers, which foundation was Jesus Christ, the little stone cut out of the mountain without hands, on which the true church was ever built, and which would break in pieces all that was in the mixture. Some then accused him that he acknowledged no church. He replied, I do acknowledge a church, the church in God. To which priest Willis, who had preached, said, He speaks nothing but nonsense, and gave as an example of nonsense the expression that Parnell had used, the church in God. James Parnell then took out his Bible and showed him that it was a scriptural expression, so that the priest and his companions were made ashamed. After some further disputation, they commanded James Parnell to put off his hat while the priest prayed. But rather than do this, Parnell left the steeple house. He was followed by one Justice Wakering and arrested, but was allowed to go into a friend's house till their worship was over, where he spoke to the people who had come together. Being afterwards brought before the justices, he was committed to the common jail at Colchester, as having been guilty, with very many other persons of his gathering, of a riotous entrance into the parish church at Great Cogshell, and of causing an unlawful assembly in the highway, and using menacing and threatening speeches, tending to the breach of the peace. The court order bears the date, the 12th day of July, 1655, and is signed by Herbert Pelham, Thomas Cook, Dionysus Wakering, and William Harlackenden. It was clear enough who were the chief actors in this persecution, for when he was brought before the justices, there were six or seven priests present, four of whom were independents who were acting as parish priests. These preachers came from the different parts of Essex where James Parnell had so effectually preached the gospel, to the convincement of the people, and one of them spoke in public to the justices in order to stir up their spirits to persecute. Thus, says James Parnell, the churches gather themselves together against Christ and his kingdom, and now the ravening wolves in sheep's clothing do appear. Yes, their fruits make them manifest. These are they who call themselves Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These are the builders who have rejected, and do reject, the precious stone, which has become the chief cornerstone, and woe unto them upon whom it falls." He was kept very close in prison, none of his friends being permitted to see him with peace and freedom. He occupied the time which transpired till the court session in writing a reply to his court order, in which he clearly exposed its falsities, 
which he sent to the magistrates who committed him in order to clear his conscience. The court sessions were to be held at Chelmsford, which is 22 miles from Colchester, to which he was obliged to walk, being hooked with six felons to a chain. He was coupled with one suspected of murder, and along with three others was obliged to remain on the chain night and day. Thus, James Parnell remarks, I was led through the country for a gazing stock unto the world, but truth was preached in all of this, and it prevailed on the hearts of the people. Thus I could rejoice in all and triumph over my enemies. James Parnell, as if the chief felon, was brought before the judge with irons upon one hand. But as some of the people cried out against this severity, on the next day, when he was again brought up, the irons were removed. A long indictment was read, containing the same charges as the court order, and when several witnesses had given their testimony against him, the reply which he had written to the charges and sent to the justices was read openly in the court. Judge Hills did all he could, by a wrong interpretation of Parnell's writings, to incense the jury against him, and even went so far as to tell them that, if they did not find him guilty, the sin would lie upon their own heads. But he would not allow James Parnell to say a word in his own defense. Notwithstanding this unjust conduct, the jury returned and said they could charge him with nothing but the paper he had written in reply to his court order after he was imprisoned, and that they could not find him guilty of the charges in the indictment. This, however, did not satisfy the judge, and he at length succeeded in drawing some words from the foreman, to which the rest of the jury did not consent, upon which he assumed a legal power to recommit Parnell to prison, having imposed two fines to the value of about forty pounds, one for contempt of the ministry, and the other for contempt of the magistry, saying the Lord Protector, that is, Oliver Cromwell, had charged him to punish any such persons as should show contempt for either magistry or ministry. Such were the unconstitutional proceedings of his enemies against him, and some of his accusers were even allowed to stand upon the bench near the judge and frequently whisper in his ear during the trial. But, he says, as the deceit of my enemies was manifested to many, and caused them to acknowledge the truth in their hearts, I was made to rejoice in all, and my sufferings were not grievous, but joyous. Not feeling liberty to pay the unjust fines which had been imposed, he was remanded to prison, the judge having given a special charge to the jailer not to allow any giddy-headed people, by which he meant friends, to come to him. On this occasion, James Parnell remarks, So then, they brought me back to prison again, where I still remain in the peace and freedom of my spirit, which none can take away, though my body be in the hands of my enemies. Yet this I know, that the invisible God is working in secret by his power, and with a strong arm is carrying on his great work, which he has begun in the earth. Yes, he will bring down and overturn all, until it comes into his hand to whom it belongs, and he will exalt his kingdom in the hearts of his people, and his Son shall rule over the earth. All his enemies shall be his footstool, and shall bow unto him, and lay down their crowns before him, and acknowledge his power. Yes, he will dash all the lifeless forms and false likenesses and images which have been set up by man in his own imaginations and called churches. 
He will dash them and the powers of the earth in pieces, one against another, like a potter's vessel. Though now they disdain the cornerstone, yet then it shall grind them to powder. For our God is a consuming fire, and who is able to stand in the day of his wrath? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Therefore, woe to all his enemies, and to him who lifts up his hand against his Maker, to do contrary to what he has decreed. This is the end of part two.